Hey guys, welcome back to Reading by Flashlight. So if the audio is a little bit different today, I'm trying something out and I don't know if it'll work or not. But without further ado, let's get into Daughter of the Deep, the book we're currently looking at. We're going over chapters 11 through 15 today. And yeah, let's get on with it. So where we left off in chapter 10, uh, Anna had just been saved by Socrates. And I'm telling you, Socrates better be the whole hero of this story or I'm going to die. But back to the story. So Socrates had just saved Anna from her captors who were trying to take her back to Land Institute, I'm assuming. So chapter 11 starts where they don't let Caleb drown. I mean, they're not bad people. They're not going to let him die. So, you know, Dr. Hewitt and them fish him out of the water, and a couple of the kids haul him off for some sort of interrogation. And they strip all the L.I. attackers of their weapons, and they basically constrain them with zip ties, and they set them adrift in the pontoon. And... Dr. Hewitt comes up and he says, Land Institute doesn't reward failures. We must get underway. So, you know, the people at Land Institute aren't going to be happy that their people are coming back zip-tied and without Anna Dakar. So let's get back to this dramatic story. So Tia is, like, staring at him. And she's like, Sir, we've been attacked. We have wounded people. We should call the coast guard ourselves we need help like they have wounded people they don't have like a big group of medics on board like sure i'm sure some of the people like uh, the orcas know how to handle healing and stuff but they need like actual medical permits and all i don't know do doctors need permits i'm so lost right now okay and Hewitt's like, the authorities can't help us, Prefect. We would just put them in danger. Finish your modifications and start the engines. The Aranax will not be far behind. And Tia's not happy with this order, but she goes off to do what she's been told. So yeah, they're definitely wounded kids. You got three people were wounded with miniature harpoons. And Franklin thinks they'll be okay. They'll just need a couple stitches. And so he's like, it's completely unnecessary, though. If you're going to shock somebody unconscious, why spear them, though? Because they're like six-inch hooked projectiles that they were hit with. Like, one guy was hit in the shoulder. And everybody else only had, like, minor injuries. Like, Franklin was telling Anna to go to the sick bay just to make sure that she's okay and that the poison's out of her system. And she's like, I'm fine, I'm fine, but he doesn't believe her. And... Neither do Nalina and Esther. They're like, yeah, no, we don't believe it. And so, yeah, so the snake venom isn't the only poison that she's trying to flush out of her system. Oof. The cephalopods are running around finishing up Dr. Hewitt's alt tech modifications and the work that he was having them do before they were attacked. And they look, like, really excited. Like, they're talking, like, breathlessly, and they're talking about math and stuff, and it's just, mm, math. If math was a person, no, I don't even want to think about it. And then Nalena grins up and down, and she's like, can you believe this? And she passes by, and she's just like, 
And Anna's like, getting zapped by Drew's gun hasn't slowed her down at all. If anything, it seems to have charged her batteries. She's like, you sure you're okay? And then her housemate, Kay, calls, oh, no way. Look at these phase optics reaction times. And Elena heads off. Like, she was excited about that. I've got no idea what she even said. <laughs> and Anna said, she's the most caring friend you could ever want, but you have to accept that sometimes you'll have to take a backseat to shiny new tech. <laughs> In a matter of minutes, the Verona is underway. So they're heading due west, and Socrates is keeping pace with the yacht, and he and Anna are talking, but as usual, it's all questions and no answers. And so she's wishing, like, how that he knew where she was and whether he understood that Dev was gone. And But she's like, he can't tell me those things. He can't tell me whether or not he knows that. And then there's a voice from behind her, and it says, I got upstaged by a dolphin. And then Jim's there, and his arms are crossed, his expression glum. He's like, my one job was supposed to be to protect you. I'm sorry. And then she wants to snap back and say, like, I don't need a protector. But he looks so depressed, I don't have the heart for it. So then she says, don't beat yourself up, Miles Morales. Because um, if you haven't listened to the first episode, which I encourage you to do, because then this is kind of giving more spoilers, um, he basically looks like Miles Morales. That's basically all they said to explain him. Was he's like tall, the same hair, the same eyes, you know, everything. So if you've seen Miles Morales from Into the Spider-Verse, you know what this guy looks like. I wonder if he's actually Spider-Man. So then she decides to ask the question that everyone's been wondering. So she's like, what'd you see when you looked at Dr. Hewitt's tablet? And so he immediately frowns and he's like, there was a dark shape under the water, like a massive arrowhead. And then Aiden is like, it's probably the Animax, that thing that the... Dave and Caleb were talking about. Is She's like, is it some kind of submarine? And Jim's like, not like any I've ever heard of or seen. If that's what attacked HP and it's after us, it like, I imagine he shudders or something. Like, uh-uh. And then Esther comes in and with Top at her heels and a dead squirrel in her hand. Without preamble, she hands me the squid, which is both warm and icy and extremely gross. That's disgusting. She's like, I found it in the freezer, and I put it in the microwave for 65 seconds. I didn't do it any longer because I didn't want it to get too squishy. I mean, it's a squid, so it's already squishy. Yes, that would be my exact interpretation of the whole thing. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm going to read a little paragraph about Esther. It says, I've heard experts, with quotation marks, say that autistic people have trouble with empathy, but sometimes I wonder if these experts have actually sat down and talked to autistic people. When we first met, I didn't understand why Esther wouldn't say something comforting when one of us was upset. I found her behavior a complex code, like jumbled words and signals. But once I cracked the code, I realized that she just does things a little differently. She's more likely to do something nice or offer an explanation as a way of helping me feel better. She is, in fact, one of the most empathetic people I've ever met. So she's autistic. And you don't really see that till this chapter. Or you're not really told about it till this chapter. But Tops goes to sit at Anna's feet and wags his tail like saying, I'm a very good boy. I almost killed someone earlier. <laughs> oh yeah, because he like attacked somebody earlier, I guess. And Esther's like, he's already had a ton of treats. The squid's for Socrates. And Jim said, as long as it's not for me. And Esther's like, that was a joke. Her expression deadly serious. I get it. She sounds like a robot when she says that. And then Anna said, that's wonderful. Thank you. And so Anna throws a squid to Socrates, who snacks, snaps the snack up eagerly. 
And then Esther's like, he can rest on board if he gets tired. And Anna's like, what do you mean on board? He's a dolphin. He kind of needs water, you know? And Esther's like, haven't you seen the captain's room? Harding Pencroft always had little dolphin friends everywhere. It's like Top. There's always been a Top at Harding Pencroft. I mean, well, before Harding Pencroft was destroyed. And so Anna's thinking, I don't quite understand what she means about Top and the dolphins always being at HP, but when she mentioned the school's destruction, she gets agitated again. She starts tapping her fingers on her thighs, and the volume of her voice goes up several notches. Anyway, I came to get you. Wow, that was loud. Okay. And so, <laughs> and so Anna's like, uh, oh, okay. So like she gives up. She's like, what's up? And she says, Dr. Hewitt wants to see you two on the forward deck. And he's not, well, like... We already knew he was sick, like, when the bus, like, there was something wrong with him when we first, like, hear about him on the shuttle bus, but ever since he came on the trip, he's, like, he needs a doctor. Like, he needs help. And then Esther says, I'm not an expert, but I would say he has diabetes and probably an additional underlying condition. And so Jim and Anna are glancing at each other uneasily. And, like, the idea that he's ill doesn't surprise him, like I just said. It's kind of obvious from the beginning that he was sick somehow, or just ill. So, yeah. And Esther doesn't really have much of a, like, bedside manner, but Anna trusts her instincts. And, yeah. And so, Anna's like, okay, is that why he wants to see us, because he's ill? And Esther's like, no, I just thought about that right now, so I said it. But he wants to see you because the prisoners are starting to talk again. And she looks down at her hands, and she's like, also, I have squid slime on me, and I'm going to go wash my hands off because that seems like the right thing to do. Yeah, I wouldn't want to keep a squid juice on my hands very long. But on to chapter 12. You know, it comes off with a pretty good start. Caleb is zip-tied to a metal folding chair. His wrists are bound behind him, and his ankles are fastened to the chair legs. Yay! He's being held captive now. Ha! Look at that. Okay, so when Anna sees him, she gets, you know, angry. Like, this guy, you know, he was, he caused her some pain a little bit ago. She's mad. And so he's still in his wetsuit, and his mask and his hood have been revealed. And he has, like, brown eyes and a wedge of blonde hair tinged green from chlorine. His broken nose is swelling up nicely, and blood has crusted on his lower lip. Or upper lip, or... His face, his face, his face. Okay. And he's they positioned him towards West, so he has to squint into the sun. That's perfect. That's like the ultimate kind of torture. Like, I'm serious. It's the ultimate kind of torture. Oh, and you also want to know what other defenses they put up against him? They stuck children's inflatable water wings with bright yellow and pink duckies. They've got, he's in like a floaties. Like, they've got his arms together in floaties. That's perfect. It's probably the, honestly, the only thing they had on board. Like, they probably weren't expecting this. So, that's, but that's good. That's good. That would be so funny to see in like a movie or an actual scene. And so Caleb scowls when he sees him. And Hewitt's like, Mr. South, tell Miss, or tell. Prefect Dakar what you Dakar what you told me. And Caleb's like, this boat's gonna end up at the bottom of the sea. And then he was like, the other part? And then he said, the Arnimax is coming. And Anna's like, your submarine. And Caleb lets out this like broken 
psychotic laugh. And he's like, the Aeronimax is a submarine that the way a Lamborghini is an economy car. But yes, genius, it's our ship. You've got maybe an hour if you're lucky. They sent us to take you alive, but since we failed and never reported in, they're going to follow and they'll torpedo this hunk of junk and confirm the kill afterwards. And she's the kill that they need to confirm. She's like, I want to slap him. Yeah, you should have slapped him. And then Anna's like, why the attack? Why me? And why do they send a bunch of students who couldn't do their job? And he shakes his head and he looks at her like he's disgusted. And he's like, you just got lucky with that stupid dolphin. L.I. doesn't coddle their students the way HP does. Destroying HP? And he grins like an evil psychopath. I don't know. He said, that was our senior project. And I'd say we aced it. And then Drew steps forward, and he's raising up the butt of the lading gun, but then Jim Jim stops him, and Caleb watches, like, what's happening, and he seems, like, really amused, and he's like, as for why you, Anna Dakar, do you really not know anything? And he looks at Hewitt, and he's like, I guess the professor hasn't told you the truth about HP. Were you even trained in lading guns until today? Did you even know that they existed? And everyone in the room starts to feel uncomfortable, because obviously they didn't know anything until today. And Caleb's like, that's what I thought. At LI, we aren't afraid to use our knowledge. And then he says, how many world problems could you cowards have solved if you had just shared? And then Jim's like, shared what? And then Caleb's like, you had two years to cooperate as you could have negotiated. And, you know, what is what with the two years? Hmm? And then... She remembers two years ago, her parents died. Two years, Hewitt has been fearing an attack. Two years in which Caleb says that Harding Pencroft could have negotiated. What, what, and what? Why did her parents die two years ago? Why is Hewitt fearing an attack for two years? And what could they have negotiated? And so Anna looks at Dr. Hewitt and she's like, what happened two years ago? And all he literally says is we'll have this conversation soon, I promise. What? We need it now. And then Caleb starts laughing like maniacally again. And he's like, you aren't really that stupid enough to believe his promises. He promised us a bunch of stuff too when he worked at LI. And then Hewitt is like clenching his knuckles. And he's like, you can't clench your knuckles, clench your fist. He's like, that's enough. And then Caleb's like, Professor, how about you tell them what you were doing on for LI back when I was a freshman? Tell them who had the idea. For the Aranax. And Jim's like. Professor what is he talking about? And Hewitt looks like more annoyed. Than actually ashamed. Like oh yeah. I am I helped come up with the ideas. For this death machine. That's going to blow up us. Blow us up in an hour or two. You know. And he's like. Look guys. I did many things that I wasn't proud of. Before I knew what they were capable of. And he get glared at the prisoner. And he's like. And today. Land Institute proved why they can never be trusted with advanced technology. You destroyed a noble institution. And Caleb's like, a noble institution? You were just protecting the legacy of an outlaw. And he's squirming around in his pink ducky inner tubes. And he's like, if you're going to kill me, go ahead and do it. This thing's uncomfortable. Yeah, the guy would rather die than be stuck in a pink inner tube. And so people in the room are like staring at very coldly at dr hewitt like they're looking at him like he's the bad guy here and then he was like we don't execute our prisoners drew kaya throw him overboard and then caleb's like smug face crumbles and he's like hey hold on and then Lindsay's like sir 
and then he would says he'll be fine. He has his control vest, his wetsuit, his water wings, you know, he has floaties. He'll be fine. And he's like, proceed. So it says Drew and Kia looked like they were tempted to jump the professor instead. But after a glance at Jim and I Twain, the sharks followed their orders. So they untied him from the chair and they dragged him and chucked him into the sea. So, yeah, and then Hewitt says, report to the bridge to Lindsay, and he says, maintain our course due with our maximum speed, and she's like, Lindsay's like, sir, we deserve an explanation, and Hewitt's like, you'll get it, but first things first, double-checked our projectors, our everything, and have the orca sweep the ship for any tracking devices, we must get away from the Aranax, and he turns towards Anna, and he's like, as for you, you're coming with me, I think it's about time you gave us a course heading. So, on the way there, she finds Nalina and decides to grab her along, and this is chapter 13. So, she's like, I need a friend at my side, even if she has to coexist with Jim for a while. And so, they go to the end of this corridor, and Hewitt opens a door to the captain's cabin, and she's never been in there before, and it's massive. I mean, there's a full-size bed, there's windows, there's a big conference table, and on the starboard side, and she yells out, Socrates! So, there's, like, this plexiglass wall that's, like, 20 feet long. And like five feet high it says and it's curved inward so water can't slosh out and it's basically just a f- giant fish tank for a dolphin dude that'd be cool if you could have one of those in your bedroom just a giant fish tank for your dolphin so he dr hewitt drags her along to this table that has a map of the pacific and it's kind of an old-fashioned so like the names are in you know that old fancy calligraphy you see in like pirate maps and the compass is like colored and the sea monsters are illustrated and you know like the corners so this is like your basic pirate treasure map thing but the weird thing is it's the map is made of like a material that she hasn't heard of it's light gray and it's kind of translucent and it's like smooth like it's never been folded before and the ink is kind of like shimmering so if she looks at it sideways it kind of makes the markings disappear like a mirage i guess And she kind of thinks it looks like dolphin skin, but she doesn't want to point that out. Because, I mean, you know, we got a dolphin in the room right here. And on top of the map, there's this, like, paperweight thing. I mean, it looks like a paperweight, but it has a curved surface with wires. And Hewitt sits in a chair across the table, and he's just mopping his face with a handkerchief. And Hewitt picks up the paperweight and sets it at the center of the map. And he says, I'm not going to ask you to do this until you feel comfortable, but it's the only way forward. And she looks at it, and it kind of looks familiar. And she says, is it a thumbprint reader? I put my thumb on it, and what? It shows us the location? And he was like, it's a genetic reader, actually, keyed to your family's DNA. But yes, you have deduced its purpose. So it's basically one of those thumbprint recognition things, but it only picks up her family's DNA. So I guess only she can unlock it. Dev could have, but I wonder if he did unlock anything. I don't know. Because why can't have Dev done it before? I don't know. This is confusing. So she tries to ask the real question here. So Jules Verne, you say he actually interviewed people. And he was like, 20,000 leagues under the sea, the mysterious island. The texts are based on real events. And she's like, foundational texts? You make them sound like they're sacred. And he would like, hardly. They're novelizations. They're misinterpretations. 
but at the core, it's the truth. Ned Land was a real Canadian master harpooner, and Professor Pierre Aranax was a French marine biologist. And Elena's like, Ned Land, Land Institute. And Jim's like, and Aranax, that's the name of the sub. And he was like, yes, along with the professor's manservant, Consil, were the only survivors of a doomed naval expedition. In the 1860s, they joined the search for a supposed sea monster, a creature that was sinking ships across the globe. Their, ex- their vessel, the Abraham Lincoln, was lost somewhere in the Pacific, and over a year later, uh, land, Aranax, and Consil were found inexplicably in a small lifeboat off the coast of Norway. So... Anna's leaning forward. She's like, I know the plot of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But now it's kind of seeming more like a prophecy, you know? And he was like, they were dismissed as madmen. Like, I doubt ever even Jules Verne actually believed them, but he listened. He made stories. He wrote books based on information that they gave him about their adventures. And then he talks about how Jules Verne found a second group of people that had claimed to encounter a similar um, experience to the one that had been described in 20,000 Leagues. So he made another one, The Mysterious Island, and that was based off the interview with that group of men. And so Anna's like Cyrus Harding and Bonaventure Pencroft, the founders of the school, just like Ned Land founded Land Institute. And then Nalina's like, if that's all true, you're telling us that the main dude was real too, Nemo. And he's like, that's correct. And she said, and we're not talking about the cartoon fish, right? And and Anna's like, someone had to say it. And he's like, no, the main dude was not a cartoon fish. He wasn't a fictional, fictional character either. He was a real 19th century person, a genius who created marine technology generations ahead of time. Like, the technology that we're in today isn't even as advanced. Like, uh, and he's like, and we found out that he has a descendant. And then Anna sits down and she's like, Esther is a descendant from Cyrus Harding. And, and she says, and Captain Nemo, that was his real name. It was Prince Dakar, an Indian noble. And then he was like, yes, Miss Dakar, as of today, you were his only surviving direct descendant. That makes you quite literally the most important person in the world. I'd be like... No. In chapter 14, that's what Anna says. Nope. That's the only word she can muster. She's like, you are not telling me that our school was destroyed, my brother was killed, and Land Institute tried to kidnap me because I'm a descendant of a fictional character. And he was like, it's not fictional. Like, he's acting like he has to explain this to a bunch of first graders. Like, Prince Dakar was your fourth great-grandfather. And then Nalina's like, I agree with Anna. This is just crazy. But then Jim sets the gun down on the table and he's like, we have evidence. And so she's, Anna's like, if you have all this stuff, you know, like if all the inventions and stuff that he made, you can actually create, then what do you need me for? And Hewitt winces and he's like, Prefect Dakar, in the last 150 years, we have succeeded in recreating only a few of your ancestors' scientific advances. We've been like children playing dress-up in a great man's clothes. Most of his work is still beyond our reach. And Anna's like, you think I can change that? I don't have any family secrets. I don't know anything. You know, like, she doesn't, she just learned about this today. She doesn't have some secret chest in her bedroom full of blueprints and stuff. And then he was like, no, that was part of Nemo's plan. And then Jim sits down and he's like, Nemo's plan? And he was, 
says, Only two times did outsiders meet Captain Nemo and live to tell the tale. The first time, and Nalina answers for him, was Land and Aranax, the bad guys. And Hewitt says, Yes, they would not, of course, call themselves bad guys. They fled from Nemo's sub, the Nautilus, and convinced him that they'd barely escaped the world's most dangerous madman. And Hewitt says, And Nemo was a bitter, dangerous outlaw. He hated the great colonial powers, and he sank their ships across the globe, hoping to wreck their trade and bring them to their knees. And Jim frowns, and he's like, Nice guy. <laughs> mm, okay. And he was like a brilliant scientist who had personal reasons to hate imperialism. So here's kind of a story. It says, During the Indian Rebellion of 1857, Prince Dakar stood up against the British. And in response, the British destroyed his principality and killed his wife and elder son. After that, Dakar went into hiding and eventually became Captain Nemo. You, Anna, are descended from his younger son, his only living heir. What? So then Nolan is like, so that's what Land Institute is. Like I said, the bad guys. They want to save the world order. What does that make us? The good guy outlaws? And she's like, for the record, I'm okay with that. And he was like, I'm so glad. As Prefect Descartes did deduced, our school was founded by the second group who encountered Nemo. Cyrus Harding and Bonaventure Pencroft. They had the good fortune of becoming stranded on an island that happened to be one of the captain's secret bases. He helped them survive and eventually escape. And Jim's like, he had a lot of secret bases? And it says he asks like he always wanted one. That'd be cool, though. I mean, to be honest, that would be really cool. And he was like, he had a dozen that we know of, perhaps more. But anyway, by the time they met Nemo, he was a different man. And his personal tragedies had left him broken and disillusioned. Despite being a genius, despite possessing the most powerful submarine ever built, he'd failed to make any real change in the world, or so he had believed. And Anna's like he died in his sub. Nemo helped the castaways escape, and then he sank the Nautilus in a subterranean lagoon or something, right before the island went up in a big volcanic explosion, and the sub was basically his tomb. And Nolan is like, but there wasn't anything in the book about Harding and Pencroft starting a school. And then he was like, well, of course not. The only reason Harding and Pencroft spoke to Jules Verne was to change the public narrative. If anyone did begin to suspect that Captain Nemo was real, it was much better if they never saw him as a threat. So Nemo had given up his quest for vengeance, and he did die aboard the Nautilus, which was supposedly demolished in the destruction of the island. And Jim says, our purposes, what are those? And then Hewitt points at the map, and he says, Just before Nemo died, he pulled Cyrus Harding aside and had some final words with him. It says that much in Verne's book. but it does not say is that Nemo gave Harding a treasure chest of pearls, and he was charged with a mission. And that mission was to make sure that he kept his technology safe and in secret. And that it would also never be used by world powers or stolen by Land Institute. And so we, since we're part of that school's legacy were supposed to safeguard Nemo's legacy and to reveal his advances only a little bit at a time only when we decide that the world is ready for it and he said most importantly we were to safeguard his descendants until the time was right and then Anna says right for what and again Dr. Hewitt just looks at her and doesn't say anything and he says this map leads us to one of Nemo's bases not just any base the island where Nemo died it wasn't completely destroyed in the eruption was it and Hewitt says, Anna, two years ago, your parents gave their lives to find the island. Your brother was being prepared to take charge of operations there once he graduated college. Since we discovered it, the island has become a field lab and underwater archaeology site staffed by HP faculty. It holds our most advanced technology and artifacts. And Jim's rubbing his face and he's like, that's what Land Institute wants, access to the island. 
and you, you used to work for L.I., and, like, he acts like he broke his heart, like, like, he betrayed them, and then he stares at the map, and he's like, that's true, when I was younger, I graduated from HP, I was in House Shark, like you and Dev, nevertheless, I always had a grudging admiration for Land Institute, they favor action over caution, and offense over defense, and they were alluring to me. And so, it says, in some ways, there is school made just entirely for sharks, and that's why I accepted a job there and why I spent years designing stuff for them, a submarine that could rival the Nautilus, and it took me a long time to see that the ugly, brutal side of L.I. to realize what they were going to do with all that power that I was building for them. And he continues and says, I don't expect you to trust me, but my past with L.I. is one reason that I wanted to be Dev's advisor. I tried to guide his process and teach him why HP's approach is the only responsible way forward. Dev reminded me of so much myself at his age. And, like, Anna's shocked by that. Like, she says she's even tempted to laugh because, like, she can't imagine two people who are less alike than Dev and Hewitt. He sighs and he's like... At any rate, when your parents found Nemo's baseline, Institute feared it would give HP an unstoppable advantage. So Nemo's most important work could only be operated by his descendant, and unlike Land Institute, we have good relations with the Dakar family. And then he said, the island's completely off the grid. It's cut off from all outside communication. Its location is unknown even to me. The only way to find it, and Anna finishes the sentence, is me. And she looks at the paperweight thing. And he says, exactly. The base is our only hope. And the staff there won't know about HP's destruction. We have to warn them. And we can regroup there, rearm ourselves, protect. And Anna's like, or we could just go to the authorities. We have been attacked. Our school's been attacked. I mean, you know, in a sense, you would want to tell somebody. You don't want this, like, big rivalry between a school and not have some authority know about it. I would think. And then he was like, who? The police? The FBI? The military? Best case scenario, they write us off as lunatics. Worst case, they believe us. Are you prepared to be whisked off to a secret government site and spend the rest of your days being interrogated? Land Institute and Harding Pencroft agree on almost nothing, but we do agree on one thing, that turning Nemo's technology over to the world's government, or worse, the world's cooperations, would be disastrous. It, we must... And then he, like, slumps forward in... Like he's been punched. Like he's just knocked himself out or something. And Jim's like, Professor? He's like, I'm fine. Just overworked myself. And Anna looks at Nalina. And they're both thinking, yeah, that's a total lie. And then he was like, Prefect Twain, some assistance, please. So he helps him up. And he says, I'm going to leave you for now. Prefect Dakar, take some time to think. Our actions are going to be up to you. We'll follow your orders. And Anna's like, you're leaving? This is your cabin, though. And he says, oh, no, it's yours. I did say you're the most important person on the planet, so suffice it to say you're almost the most important person on this ship. We will talk again in the morning. Mr. Twain, can you help me to the bridge? So, yeah, Jim goes to help him out, get his to the medical bay or something. And then before he leaves, Anna says, you mentioned artifacts. You said Nemo's sub was supposedly demolished. My parents died trying to find... And he says, they succeeded, Anna. After four generations of fruitless searching, your parents succeeded. They discovered the wreck of the Nautilus. So chapter 15 starts with Anna's, like, saying, like, what do you even do with that kind of information? And so she's like, okay, imagine, you're now the most important person in the world, and you have to decide the fate of your friends and classmates. And by the way, your parents died during the discovery of a make-believe super sub from the 1800s. 
and she says, me, I call for a slumber party. So she asks Esther and Elena to come and bunk in the captain's cabin because she doesn't want to be alone, even though she has Socrates. She calls him her teddy dolphin. <laughs> and so once they've settled in, Jim checks on her one last time, and he says, okay. She's like, Anna's like, okay, thanks for checking. Good night. Get out. <laughs> she doesn't actually say get out, but she's probably thinking it. So, yeah. She expects to be staying up a while because, you know, you get this news, how can you go to sleep? But she sleeps pretty fast. She falls asleep pretty fast. And she starts to have dreams about the water and the waves and past memories that aren't necessarily vividly described here. So, I'm not going to, like, say them because it's just stuff like walking to elementary, holding my brother's hand, you know, stuff like that. So she wakes up to the sound of voices, and Esther and Elena are standing over her, and they're kind of having, like, a whispering argument. <laughs> and she's like, somehow I slept through them getting up, hitting the shouters, and not getting dressed. And Socrates's giant fish tub is empty, so she assumes that he's probably, like, hunting for breakfast or something. And Elena notices that she's awake, and she's like, hey, how are you feeling? And Top rests his chin on her leg and gives me his get-up grunt. Everybody is a critic. So she's like, I'm awake. And she's like, what's going on? And Elena gives Esther, like, a look of caution, like, something like, remember what we talked about? And then Esther said, the good news is he's not dead. And then Elena throws her hands up in the air and she's like, Esther! And she and Esther's like, you told me to start with the good news. That's good news. He isn't dead. Not yet. And then she thinks, who? And she starts to think that maybe they're talking about Dev, like, that he's not dead. But Esther doesn't let her you know, dwell on that, and she's like, Dr. Hewitt, Franklin found him unresponsive in his cabin, and then Anna's like, show me, and so she's still in her pajamas, but she doesn't care, they need to see what's happening, because I don't know why, and Jim's guarding the door to the sick bay, and he looks like he hasn't slept all night, and Franklin, Couch, and Lindsay are standing on either side of Dr. Hewitt, who looks like he's lying unconscious in a hospital bed, and he's hooked up to an IV and monitors, and he has an oxygen mask strapped onto his face, and his vitals don't look too good. And it smells really bad in there, I guess, to top, because he leaves, I guess. And Lindsay's eyes are bloodshot, and she has, like, a surgical mask hanging from her right ear, and she's, like... His blood sugar's high. Our best guess is late-stage cancer, maybe pancreatic with type 2 diabetes. We're not set up for advanced diagnosis, unless less treatment. He needs immediate medical help. And Franklin said, except Gemini here won't let us put out an SOS. And Gemini's like, the professor's orders. Complete radio silence no matter what. If Land Institute finds us, and no one says anything. I mean, no one really has to finish that sentence, right? They're toast. They're toast if they find you. And so Anna asks, can they keep you, can you keep him alive? Like, is he going to die or like, can you keep him alive? Keep him breathing, you know, keep his, keep his heart pumping. And Franklin just shrugs and he's like, we're freshmen, Anna. We've had medical training, but, and then Esther yells, if it's late stage pancreatic cancer, his survival odds are bad no matter what. Even a stage state of the art hospital won't do too much for him. And then Lindsay's like, I don't believe this. We have to turn back. And then Jim said, the base. Hewitt mentioned it has advanced tech. Maybe they have medical supplies and stuff that's better than state of the art. And Elena clicks her tongue and she's like, that's a huge long shot. And Franklin demands, what base? How far is it? And everyone looks at her and she's like, 
I guess I gotta go do the map fingerprint thing. And she says, do your best to keep Hewitt stable. Jim, Esther, and Elena, come with me. Let's see if we can find some answers. So yeah, that's five chapters for you guys of Daughter of the Deep by Rick Riordan, his latest book. And this episode seems to have been pretty chill. That may be because of the audio. I know. I'm trying something out with the audio, so... If it's bad, tell me, so I'll go back to normal, but I don't know. But thank you guys for listening to this episode. Come back next Monday. We'll be going over chapters 16 through 20 of Daughter of the Deep, and if you know anybody who would be interested in this podcast or in this book, please point them to this direction. And yeah, so thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week. And remember... Socrates is going to win the whole thing. Bye.